Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Today, we take a detour from our deep dive into the Declaration of Independence. If you have been listening, you know we are in the middle of our review of the list of grievances against the king. But in light of recent events in which the 25th Amendment has become the focus of intense interest, we are releasing this special episode. Okay, let's be reasonable here. The judge is a little bit too polite. What he's referring to are the calls by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, and many others to have Vice President Mike Pence invoke the 25th Amendment and remove President Trump from office. In fact, Speaker Pelosi and Senator Schumer have issued a press release and phoned Pence demanding that he do the same. But the Vice President didn't take their call. And this is all in the wake of the storming of the Capitol building on January 6th, 2021, by people who appeared to be extreme Trump supporters. A mob descended on the Capitol, and many of them were able to push past the police and the barricades to occupy the Capitol building and disrupt the counting of the electoral votes for the November 2020 election. One man even got into Speaker Pelosi's personal office and had his picture taken with him sitting in her chair with his feet on her desk. Another made off with an official podium. Members of Congress had to flee to a secure location while protesters occupied the Senate floor. Windows were smashed and some other property damaged. A police officer was fatally wounded when he was hit in the head with a fire extinguisher. And a protester, who was an Air Force veteran no less, was shot and killed by the police. Others died, apparently from medical emergencies triggered by the event. This was a very sad day for America. And many pointed to months of agitation by President Trump as laying the stage for this siege. In fact, many accused him of orchestrating the gathering of a crowd of thousands just a few blocks away from the Capitol, where he made remarks riling up the crowd and urging it to move to the Capitol. Although he didn't overtly call for that crowd to take over the Capitol and use violence, this is what happened. Many have even called it an insurrection or domestic terrorism. However you characterize what happened, it failed. Order was restored. Congress reconvened. It counted the Electoral College votes and declared that Vice President Joe Biden won the election. People who trespassed onto the Capitol are being arrested across the country, including that guy who allegedly put his feet up on Pelosi's desk. Meanwhile, Pelosi, Schumer, and many others are laying the blame at the president's Feet, demanding that it is time for him to go and that the 25th Amendment is the mechanism to do it. Trump's term is almost up and they don't care. And now, back to you, our oh-so-polite judge. Thank you, Mike Gerard. Listeners, you obviously know now that fabulous Mike Gerard is joining us and will also be joined by our other tremendous co-narrator, bombastic Brent Bassett. By the way, in light of recent events, our other prior episodes you might be interested in include one about the first principle of the rule of law and another about riots, protests, and mobs. So please check them out if you haven't already. Or check them out for a refresher. Putting aside how history will judge the events of January 6, 2021, the question we are exploring today 
is what the heck is the 25th Amendment? And why are Speaker Pelosi and Senator Schumer calling on Vice President Pence to invoke it? How does this all work? Hey, Judge, before you begin, I just want to mention that the Patriot Week Foundation is hosting its 8th annual Patrick Henry Awards on March 23rd, 2020 via Zoom. And this is an event like no other. It's an inexpensive way to support our nonpartisan nonprofit work and have a unique, interesting learning experience. It'll include a brilliant reenactment of Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, a fabulous Abigail Adams reenactor, a University of Michigan law professor will be doing a tribute to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, plus much more. You can check it all out at patriotweek.org. Okay, Judge, get going. Why, thank you, Mike Gerard. Okay, let's get to it. Section 1 of the 25th Amendment provides as follows, quote, In case of the removal of the president from office, or of his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president, unquote. Section 2 provides, quote, Whenever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress, unquote. Those two sections are relatively pithy. The next provision, section three, gets a tad bit longer. Quote, whenever the president transmits to the president pro tempore of the Senate, as an aside, the president pro tempore is the majority leader of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives, his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the Vice President as acting President, unquote. And the next section is much longer and much more complicated. Quote, Whenever the Vice President and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments, as an aside, that's the cabinet, or such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. Thereafter, when the President transmits to the President pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that no inability exists, he shall resume the powers and duties of his office unless the Vice President and a majority of either the principal officers of the Executive Department or of such other body as Congress may by law provide transmit within four days to the President pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Thereupon, Congress shall decide the issue, assembling within 48 hours for that purpose, if not in session. If the Congress within 21 days after receipt of the latter written declaration, or if Congress is not in session within 21 days after Congress is required to assemble, is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall continue to discharge the same as acting president. Otherwise, the president shall resume the powers and duties of his office. Unquote. Whew! That is one of the longest provisions in the Constitution about anything. I mean, we protect the free exercise of religion, the right to free speech and press, the right to assembly and petition the government, and disestablish churches in just 45 words in the First Amendment. 
while Section 4 of the 25th Amendment takes 274 words. Wow! But there are good reasons for this. To break the amendment down, let's go back to the original unamended Constitution. Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution vests the executive power of the United States into the President. It also establishes the office of the Vice President, and the original text provided that, quote, in case of removal of the President from office or his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of said office, the same shall devolve on the Vice President. And the Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, both of the President and Vice President, declaring what officer shall then act as President, and such officer shall act accordingly, until the disability be removed, or President shall be elected. Unquote. So even in the original Constitution, the provision took 80 words. That language remained operative until the 25th Amendment was ratified by the states and became effective on February 10th, 1967. Which begs the question, why did we change a provision of the Constitution that stood the test of time from 1788 until 1967, nearly 200 years? Well, history has a funny way of throwing curveballs at the Constitution to probe its limits and shortfalls. Indeed, it didn't really meet the test of time. In fact, there were three main flaws that came to light over the generations. The first flaw was exposed when the first president to die in office, President William Henry Harrison, passed away in 1841, shortly after his inauguration. At the time, political leaders looked at the language, and an ambiguity became evident. Let's listen to the language again. Quote, In case of removal of the president from office, or his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president, unquote. To us, this seems straightforward. The president dies, the vice president becomes president. But is that what the text says? It says the same devolves onto the president. And the phrase before that refers to the power and duties of said office. If the founders wanted the vice president to become the president, they could have chosen more clear words. Instead, it says the powers and duties of the office devolve to the vice president. When President Harrison died, his vice president, John Tyler, vigorously argued that he was now the president, not just a vice president with presidential powers. Some in Congress thought that he was not the president, just a vice president, to which the powers of the presidency had devolved. This may seem like semantics, but Tyler definitely wanted the prestige and credibility of being the actual president not just a caretaker using presidential power. A debate about this issue played out in Congress. The Congress addresses various correspondence to the president, and it needed to figure out exactly the right way to phrase its salutations to Tyler. In the end, Congress specifically rejected a proposal to refer to Tyler as vice president, now exercising the office of president. And instead, Congress acknowledged him as the president. Tyler won the argument, he was accepted as president, and that convention stuck. Bombastic Brent Bassett, please take it for a few minutes. My pleasure, Judge. As of the drafting of this episode, eight presidents have died in office, half from natural causes and half from assassination. Plus, President Nixon resigned. So, this provision was necessary and has received a full workout. The one time it was not triggered 
is when a president was removed from office, that is, after impeachment and conviction. Although there have been impeachments by the House of Representatives, none of the presidents have been removed from office by the Senate. To learn more about impeachment, you can visit the very first episode of this podcast series. With the passage of the 25th Amendment, any lingering doubts about the vice president becoming the president were laid to rest. Section 1 clearly delineates that following the removal, resignation, or death of a president, the vice president becomes the president. Hey boys, stop hogging the microphone. Wait a minute, did Mike Gerard just say boys? <laughs> he most certainly did. Here come the Beatles, special episode or not. Ah, come on, boys, don't do it. It was just a slip of the tongue. You know, for once, I'm actually glad you played a clip of the Beatles, because that clip shows exactly how overrated and simplistic they are. In any event, the second flaw with the original text of the Constitution became much more noticeable as the decades passed. There was no provision to replace the vice president. Like presidents, vice presidents are human beings and they're plagued with death and resignation. Plus, for circumstances more fortunate for the vice president, they can take office as president. I mean, that's the main point, right? In fact, before the adoption of the 25th Amendment, seven vice presidents died, one resigned, and eight became president due to the resignation or the death of the president. And the office of the vice president just stood vacant. Under the Constitution, the Congress would establish who would take the office if the presidency and the vice presidency were vacant. I mean, thankfully, we haven't come across a circumstance in which both the president and the vice president had died, were incapacitated, or resigned simultaneously. But, as we moved into the modern age, this circumstance could easily be seen as to coming to fruition. In fact, when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, it was only one part of a broader conspiracy that didn't succeed. The diabolical plan was also to slay Vice President Andrew Johnson, Secretary of State William Seward, and General Ulysses S. Grant. If they had succeeded, the Union's leadership would have been decapitated. Now, even if that did happen, there would have been a president still under the succession rules adopted by Congress, because the Second Congress passed the Succession Act of 1792, which provided for a line of succession if both the president and the vice president were out. Since 1792, there's been such a law in the books, but Congress couldn't create a mechanism to fill in the vacancy of the vice president. The flaw about a vacant vice presidency was addressed by Section 2 of the 25th Amendment. Fortuitously, it would not be too long after the 25th Amendment was ratified when Section 2 would actually kick in. Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned in 1973 under a cloud of accusations of corruption. He pled no contest to one count of tax evasion. President Richard Nixon then invoked Section 2 and nominated Congressman Gerald Ford of Michigan, the Republican minority leader of the House of Representatives, to succeed Agnew. 
Ironically, Section 1 of the 25th Amendment would then kick in for the first time when Nixon resigned on August 9, 1974 because of the Watergate scandal and its cover-up. The Nixon administration's debasement led to the first and second uses of the 25th Amendment, which had only been in effect for just a few years. Talk about hogging the microphone. Let me get back in here, Mike Gerard. A third glaring defect, which for generations was mostly hidden from the public, but was extremely important, was when presidents were disabled by sickness, health, injured, or for other reasons were incapable of fulfilling the functions of the presidency. Well, you might say the original Constitution specifically stated that if the president is unable to fulfill his or her role, that the duties of the office devolve onto the vice president. And if you think about that, this may be why the founders used this quirky language about the powers devolving on the vice president. A president might be sick or injured temporarily, and we needed the vice president to use presidential powers. But when the president recovered, he or she could reassume the powers of the president. Although the Constitution refers to the inability to perform the president's duty, it does not explain how that determination is to be made. If the president is incapacitated, he or she would unlikely be able to make that declaration. Does the vice president make that decision? The Congress? The Supreme Court? the states? And what if there is a dispute? How is it raised? Could it be used by political enemies to eject a president for political or other reasons unrelated to the ability to fulfill the duties of office? Actually, one of the leading lights of the founding generation highlighted this deficiency at the Constitutional Convention. John Dickinson remarked on August 27, 1787, that the original constitutional language was too vague. It did not explain what was a disability and who is to be the judge of it. Did someone say judge? Thanks, bombastic Brent Bassett. Preeminent constitutional scholar Sol K. Padover, one of my favorite historians, who was an Austrian immigrant to the United States, and received a Bachelor of Arts from Wayne State University. That's where I got my Bachelor of Arts in History and met my wife, and Bombastic Brambasset received his law degree, summarized the convention's treatment as follows. The question of presenting succession arose during debate over the role of the vice president. The convention and the committee of style made changes in the original version of August 7 and reversed each other's decisions several times, but both failed to clear up ambiguities in the language. When was the president disabled and who was to judge and what powers exactly were to devolve onto the vice president? Although there was debate on these issues, the wording finally incorporated into the Constitution has, on several occasions in our history, caused confusion and grave consternation. These were gaping holes in the Constitution. Still theoretically, under the original Constitution, if the president was unable to serve, however that was determined, the vice president would take power. If this was a temporary condition, during that interim period of incapacity, the vice president would have the power of the president, and when the incapacity resolved, the president would regain his powers. Some real-life examples 
of such disabilities included our very first president. George Washington had pneumonia in 1790 and was bedridden near death for two weeks. James Madison had a terrible, debilitating fever. President James A. Garfield was shot by an assassin on July 2, 1881, and he lingered seriously ill for months. He finally succumbed on September 19, 1881, and that's a fascinating story. Maybe we will address that in another episode. Although he was lucid and conscious for much of the time, he almost never discussed official business. Listen to this account by Thomas N. Neal, specialist in American national government for the Congressional Research Service, about what happened with Grover Cleveland. Another instance of presidential inability or disability occurred in 1893 when President Grover Cleveland, 1885 to 1889 and 1893 to 1897, twice underwent major surgery for oral cancer aboard a private yacht, followed by a lengthy recovery, both of which events were kept secret for more than 20 years. The president's illness, surgery, and recovery took place in the context of the Panic of 1893, a collapse of financial markets that led to bank failures, widespread unemployment, and a prolonged business depression that lasted through 1897. It was feared by the president and his advisors that news of his illness might exacerbate the economic crisis. On June 30, 1893, and again in July, the president underwent surgery to remove a tumor from the roof of his mouth. The successful procedures were conducted by a team of doctors aboard a private yacht cruising in Long Island Sound. The press were informed that the president was on a fishing trip, followed by a vacation. The president recuperated at Gray Gables, his Massachusetts seaside home, for the month of July. During his recovery, he was fitted with an oral prosthesis, which made it possible for him to speak, and on August 5th, he returned to Washington. According to disability and succession scholar John Feerick, Vice President Adlai Stevenson was never told of the operation, and only one cabinet member was informed in advance. Other than contemporary rumors that were widely dismissed as sensational journalism, the operation remained a secret until 1917, nine years after Cleveland's death, when a member of the surgical team reported the event. Just listening to that makes my mouth hurt and seasick. A few decades later, President Woodrow Wilson traveled over 8,000 miles in 22 days, and he collapsed from exhaustion on the tour. He returned to Washington, D.C., and after just a few days, he suffered a massive stroke on October 2, 1919. What happened next literally affected the fate of the country. Listen to this account from History.com. Wilson's wife, Edith, blamed Republican opponents in Congress for her husband's stroke, as their vehement opposition to the League of Nations often took the form of character assassination. Edith, who was even suspicious of the political motives of the vice president, Thomas Marshall, closely guarded access to her husband. She kept the true extent of Wilson's incapacitation from the press and his opponents. While Wilson lay in bed, unable to speak or move, Edith purportedly insisted that she screen all of Wilson's paperwork, in some cases signing Wilson's name to documents without consulting the convalescing president. Edith, however, denied usurping her husband's position during his recovery, and in her memoirs insisted she acted only as a steward. 
For about half a year, Secretary of State Robert Lansing called meetings of the cabinet, without Wilson's knowledge. When Wilson recovered enough to know what Lansing did, he forced Lansing to tender his resignation, proving the old adage, let no good deed go unpunished. More than 30 years later, Dwight Eisenhower also had a massive heart attack while playing golf in September of 1955 while on a trip in Colorado. It took about six weeks for him to recover. He remained in the hospital until Armistice Day, that is November 11th, the anniversary of the end of World War I for our younger listeners. He was not as incapacitated as Wilson, but he was seriously compromised. In fact, because of Eisenhower's age, he and his vice president, Richard Nixon, agreed that Eisenhower would temporarily let Nixon act as president. But as soon as Ike decided it was time to resume the office, he would regain the powers. This arrangement was formalized in a memorandum released on March 3, 1958. Similar agreements were in effect for Presidents Kennedy and Johnson and their respective vice presidents. Just a few years later, November 22, 1963. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You'll excuse the fact that I'm out of breath, but about 10 or 15 minutes ago, a tragic thing from all indications at this point has happened in the city of Dallas. Let me quote to you this. And you'll excuse me if I am out of breath. A bulletin, this is from the United Press, from Dallas. President Kennedy and Governor John Connolly have been cut down by assassin's bullets in downtown Dallas. They were riding an open automobile when the shots were fired. The president, his limp body carried in the arms of his wife, Jacqueline, has rushed to Parkland Hospital. That was Jay Watson announcing that President John F. Kennedy had been shot. And of course, he was killed. Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson, under the Constitution, became president. But it raised the question, what if Kennedy had lived, but was totally incapacitated? Mike Girard, tell us what happened next. With leadership provided by Indiana Senator Birch Bay, on July 6, 1965, the Congress passed the 25th Amendment and sent it to the states for ratification. It was ratified relatively quickly on February 10, 1967. Many of the issues left open by the original constitutional language involving disability or other inability to perform the duties of office have indeed been answered by the 25th Amendment. Under Section 3, when the President sends the Leader of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives a written declaration that he or she is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the Vice President has the authority to act as Acting President. Then, the president can reestablish his authority as president by the same process. According to Neal of the Congressional Research Service, Section 3 has been formally invoked twice, both times by George W. Bush in 2002 and again in 2007 when he was sedated to undergo a routine colonoscopy. President Reagan did something similar when he was sedated during surgery to remove a cancerous polyp from his large intestine on July 13, 1985. The language of Reagan's letter was a bit contradictory. In alignment with Section 3, it said he was temporarily delegating the powers of the president to the vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, but it also said that he didn't think the 25th Amendment applied. As for Section 4, it has never been invoked or even attempted to be invoked until now. This is the section that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer cited to Vice President Pence as authority to remove President Trump from office. In a joint press release, this is what Pelosi and Schumer stated. 
The president's dangerous and seditious acts necessitate his immediate removal from office. We look forward to hearing from the vice president as soon as possible and to receiving a positive answer as to whether he and the cabinet will honor their oath to the Constitution and the American people. This morning, we placed a call to Vice President Pence to urge him to invoke the 25th Amendment, which would allow the Vice President and a majority of the Cabinet to remove the President for his incitement of insurrection and the danger he still poses. We have not yet heard back from the Vice President. In addition, all the Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee have written a letter to Pence that argues that Trump is unable to discharge his duties because... He's not mentally sound and unable to process and accept the results of the 2020 election. For Section 4 to be triggered, it requires that the vice president and a majority of either the cabinet or of another body as Congress may by law provide to send a written declaration to the Speaker of the House and the Leader of the Senate that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. If that happens, the vice president immediately assumes the powers and duties of the office as acting president. Now note here, it doesn't remove the president permanently, just temporarily. The vice president doesn't become the president, he becomes the acting president, like under Reagan and Bush when they underwent their medical procedures. Also note, the vice president cannot act alone. He needs a majority of the president's cabinet, which is extraordinarily difficult if the president who nominated them is still actively around and opposed to the procedure. In addition, Congress can designate through law another group with whom the vice president can act, but... As of today, it has not created such an alternative body. Now, let's say the vice president and half the cabinet trigger Section 4. Then the president can counter. He can send his own letter, a response, so to speak, declaring that no such inability exists. And then he's president again, unless the vice president and the majority of the cabinet or other congressional authorized body, within four days of the president's counter, transmits a letter in reply declaring that irrespective of the president's response, the president really is disabled. And if all that happens, then Congress must decide the issue. They have 48 hours to get into session if they're not already in session, and then they have 21 days from when they assemble to decide the issue. And it takes a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress to confirm that the president is unable to perform his duties. If that threshold is met, the president becomes the acting president. Otherwise, the president resumes his or her powers. And during the waiting period, the vice president is the acting president. Now, this all makes great sense. If a president is temporarily unable to exercise his powers, the vice president should be able to, with half of the cabinet, to inform the Congress and assume the powers temporarily as acting president. Once the president is able to exercise his duties, he or she can inform Congress that the president's ready to go. I mean, think of the medical procedures that Reagan and Bush underwent. But also imagine perhaps longer illnesses or other major problems like when Reagan was shot, or when Wilson had his stroke, or if Washington was on his deathbed, Cleveland was having oral surgery on a yacht, Garfield was dying for months, or maybe even Trump when he was hit with the COVID-19 virus. 
If the vice president and cabinet disagree with the president, say because of dementia or drug addiction or something else less than crystal clear, they can reply to the president's response and then the Congress decides. The requirements of half of the cabinet and the vice president and two-thirds congressional threshold are all really important to make sure this is not used as some tactic to take down a president because of politics. With regards to Trump and the 25th Amendment, Pelosi and Schumer's joint press statement doesn't even bother to explain how their argument meets the substantive requirements of the 25th Amendment. They basically ask to remove the president because he poses a danger to the republic. The Democrats of the House Judiciary Committee make a better attempt to meet the threshold of the 25th Amendment by arguing that the president is mentally unstable. I mean, on its face, the 25th Amendment is not a remedy for political disputes or immoral, criminal, or even treasonous behavior. That's what impeachment is for. And actually, our first Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast was about that very subject. And that was back in December 2019, when President Trump was facing impeachment. And that feels like a decade ago, doesn't it? I mean, if nothing else, President Trump's presidency has made it abundantly clear why we need to understand our Constitution and the enduring values of America. All right, Judge, wrap us up. Thanks, Mike Gerard. Some key takeaways from this episode. Originally, the Constitution left some gaping holes about under what circumstances and in what way power would flow between the president and vice president. For many decades, the shortcomings of the original Article 2, Section 1 provisions of the Constitution were laid bare through deaths, illnesses, and incapacitations of presidents and vice presidents. Section 1 of the 25th Amendment makes clear that when a president dies or resigns, that the vice president becomes president. Section 2 of the 25th Amendment provides a process to replace the vice president. Section 3 of the 25th Amendment provides a simple mechanism by which the president can temporarily cede power to the vice president. Section 4 of the 25th Amendment provides a process by which a president incapable or unwilling to declare him or herself incapable of performing his or her duties to be replaced by a vice president as the acting president. If there is a dispute, Congress decides with a two-thirds threshold. Please join us for our next special episode when we explore presidential inaugurations. That is going to be really fun and engaging episode. If you've missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. Plus, Mike Gerard is slowly but surely remastering our catalog, starting with our most recent episodes first and working in reverse numerical order. If the fancy strikes you, I think you will really enjoy the remastered episodes. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org for many fabulous resources, including our Patriot Lessons TV show, which has the same general thrust of the podcast but focuses on very different content. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skonechny, who not only edits this podcast, but he is the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett, awesome family guy and party host. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. 
That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.